welcome. And I got to note here from Andy, looks like Apple's downstairs. I guess that's why he gave me this. Um, so I'll flip this over here. So he's into buying apples. He thinks an apple a day keeps the doctor away, but it didn't work for him, apparently, because he's ill. So you can take your chance on it if you want. Any case, um, let me give a few announcements as we begin. You'll want to have your worship folder. And in the front, we're going to do our Advent presentation here. And uh, we'll have a lighter and a reader. But there will be a place, two places, for the congregation to repeat. One of the reasons we do this Advent candle lighting is we just use it as an object lesson. Uh, churches have used it through the years. We don't really know precisely the history of it, but I do think it's helpful to take a moment during this season to think of certain aspects of Jesus Christ. And today we're focusing on the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. I'll be doing an Advent devotional on Wednesdays. I've already done one on Jesus is the light of the world last week, so if you missed that, that's on Zoom on Wednesdays, and that uh, begins at 7 o'clock. We begin praying at 6.45, and uh, we do meet to talk socially uh, beginning at 6.30. In any case, we invite you to be a part of that. Um, the And if, by the way, if you want to participate in this lighting, we'll have four more. There's five candles, so we have four more, and if you want to do so, just please see me after the service, and I'd like uh, to get some f volunteers to do that. Otherwise, I'll just tag you and call on you like I did with um, Paul and, uh, uh, today. So let me give you a few announcements, most of which you can find in your worship folder, so you can pay attention to that. Um, and it, we, we have a... Um, the, we have the... Um, where is it? Oh, here it is. It's at my house, the Layton's Christmas open house. So uh, everyone's invited. Uh, that's on 1216, and we'll give you through email uh, a, a few more details, but just mark that date on your calendar. Uh, I think the ladies' tea is this Saturday. I'm getting nods, yes, okay. And so uh, you can see Catherine about that, and uh, that... We do have a special candlelight service if you want to mark your calendar for Christmas Eve. That is a Sunday, 1224. It'll be a beautiful time of worship and, uh, and beautiful music that we put together. Uh, that's something that we do every year. This year it'll be on the 24th, and we'll do that at 6 o'clock here. So uh, be sure to be prepared for that. Uh, one other thing, it mentions the True Church Conference. See Isaac about that and to participate and be a part of that, uh, in here, and we'll provide more details in days to come. But we help sponsor that event. We want to uh, uh, communicate to you our missions and missionaries, give you an opportunity to come with us to meet many of them. We'll probably have one come back for the Sunday following, whatever that is, I guess February 18th, to speak, most likely. Isaac is um, coordinating all of that. so be a part of that. Keep in mind one other thing that I don't think is in this announcement, but we will take a special Christmas offering for uh, the, our Anchored in Truth 
mission partner and will do so the last uh, on the 24th of, of this month on Christmas Eve, uh, both the morning and the evening if you're not able to come. Uh, also, you can do so online. Uh, I appreciate the Kenemars setting that up and we're still working in progress, but we do have a website, grbchurch.org, I think it is, uh, that you can actually log on there and give online. And if you want to do that uh, anytime and give directly towards uh, the, our mission effort, just be sure to put a, a note in there to say missions as far as uh, it gives you a place to put a note in that. All right, I think that's pretty much got our announcements. I want to go ahead and begin by reading uh, the beginning of Matthew to think about our Advent season. Matthew chapter 1, we'll have some continual reading from Matthew 2 in just a bit, and we will light the candle in just a moment. But let me read for you uh, this beginning passage from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to, to shame, resolved uh, to divert, divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this was, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he didn't know her until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Jesus is Savior, Deliverer. And he indeed is the light of the world. I'll have you come to light the candle this morning and let's focus on Jesus who is indeed the light. We do always have a little problem with that. Here you go. Let me help you. Okay. Yeah, hold this down. Okay. Okay. So hold that down. There you go. I like this candle to remind us of God's promise to send the one who is the light of the world. <clears throat> People walked in the darkness of sin, but the prophets told them of God's promise. Someday... God would send the light, one who would shine God's glory. The prophet Isaiah said, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Who is this light? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness 
that shall have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful for your goodness to us. What an incredible gift to send the Son to live among us, to fulfill all righteousness, to die, to be buried, to rise again triumphantly, and to ascend on high. Indeed, the light of the world has come. I pray, Father, that as we preach, as we pray, as we sing, as we proclaim that truth, I pray, Father, that many will come to see this great light. I pray, Father, for everyone within the sound of our voice to, to hear and heed the very gospel message, that great and that good news. I pray, Father, that this season would not be overshadowed by those things that diminish from your glory, but I pray all of our symbols and all of our uh, expressions would be those things that merely point to and enhance that true light of Jesus Christ, that light who came into our world, who is indeed life. And I pray that we would find life in Christ, not just for a moment and not for a day, but for all eternity. May your name be exalted on high. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, church. Let's praise the Lord. Sing hymn 179, Angels from the Realms of Glory. It's hymn 179. Angels from the realms of glory, bring your go ahead and receive communion with Christ who the angels certainly announce. 
If you're visiting with us, you can share in communion with us. We just ask that you are in communion with Christ. And to do so, you need to be obedient to him, confess Jesus Christ as Lord, express it in believer's baptism, and confess your sin. I'm going to give you a moment now to prepare your heart to receive the elements of the communion by confessing your sin. Jesus said, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is some dear words to our soul. There is no guilt in Christ because of the atonement that he has made. Prepare your heart to receive communion in a worthy way, and I'll prepare and dismiss in just a moment. Take a moment to pray, and then I'll pray for us. Let us pray. Holy Father, we have come to you today to receive these elements as Christ has instructed us to do so in remembrance of him, to proclaim his death until he comes. We have examined ourselves so that we may eat of the bread and drink of the cup and do so in a worthy manner. We do so in a worthy manner not because we are worthy, but Christ is worthy. And what a great remembrance that is. May that be sink deep down in our souls as we receive communion today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Receive both elements. I'll have this side stand, I'll just, and you come forward, get both elements, then circle around and receive, return to your seat when we do the middle in this exile. You go ahead and stand now and receive your elements, and let's wait to eat together. Come on, forward.
two elements that Christ has brought to our attention. He does so during the Passover feast with his disciples. He tells them that the elements, two in particular that they're taking, are now going to not symbolize God's general deliverance of his people in Egypt, the Passover, but it's going to point to that reality that has come, that is Jesus Christ, who had lived a absolute perfect life. He fulfilled all righteousness. He merited that which requires to stand before God. What requires to stand before God is perfect righteousness. There's none righteous, no, not one. We're all condemned. We're condemned already. And we know that. And so all our work and labor and effort couldn't accomplish perfection because we're not. So God had to send a son, and that's what Christmas is about, the advent, the incarnation of Christ who came, took on human flesh, lived among us, and was the only one to live in perfection and merit that holiness that is required to stand before God. If you will stand before God, you will do so because of Christ. And Christ has called his church on a regular basis, as often as you do this, to do this in remembrance of him. Remember Christ's righteousness. Scripture also talks about somebody who is the accuser of the brethren, that is Satan. Maybe your own conscience at times accuses you. Oh, wretched man that I am, why, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? Even now, I carry about that unredeemed humanity that remains flesh, Paul would call it. But yes, I remember. I remember Christ died on the cross. He didn't pay for some of my sin. He paid for all. And it is because of that then the accuser of the brethren then can look at the bloodstained book and see it all covered and wiped away. We call that the doctrine of propitiation. God's wrath is appeased. Receive this in remembrance of Christ. The church typically at that point, the early disciples, they went out and sang. And I think we should sing too. Brent, Jesse, if you'll come lead us in another hymn of worship. Let's stand. Hymn 252, Down at the Cross. Thank you. 
We'll turn over to 545, Living for Jesus.
Thank you, church. Good morning, church. As we celebrate the advent of Christ, the world would tell us that Jesus is part of the Christmas story, but the Bible would tell us that the Christmas story is part of Jesus' life. And so let us turn to uh, Matthew chapter 2. You're going to find that on page 807 in your pew Bible. Let us read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the day of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, for when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region that were two years of old or under. And according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men, thus was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were, they were no more. But when Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, 
take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Egypt. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that it was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this reminder of what Christ has come and gave for us. We thank you, that, Father, that we have come to the place in our lives where we have given ourselves over to him. We thank you for the gift of your son. We ask you, Father, to help us to be mindful of that gift. It is freely given. It be freely received by others. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in the lives and hearts of those of our friends and neighbors and our loved ones around us, that we'd have the opportunity to share the grace that you've bestowed on us through your Son. We ask you to take this offering, Father, and use it to the furtherment of your kingdom. Help us to support those that would take the word around the world. We ask you, Father, to bless this time. Bless the speaker as he comes to speak your word. For it's in Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Amen.
Let's stand and sing one more time before Pastor comes. And 607, what a day that will be. Thank you, Jesse, for helping us to worship Christ today. Indeed, we are looking for an, a day, a, an eternal day, an eternal redemption, as it's described in Hebrews chapter 9. And I invite you to turn there now, Hebrews chapter 9. If you haven't been with us, we're going through a study through the book of Hebrews. The essential theme and message from beginning to end is the superiority of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Today our focus really will be on that good thing, the greater thing, and the greatest, as described in our text beginning in verse 11 of Hebrews 9. This book of Hebrews is, is really a sermon, as I've said. It's, it's a message to the Hebrew Christians who really were being persuaded culturally in their perspective here to embrace something other than Christ or to take Christ and then add something to it. And you can't do that. It's Christ alone. And so whether you come from an atheistic perspective or a, or a religious perspective, his point is really to look to Christ and Christ alone. And you would do so because, if you'll notice verse 12 in chapter 9, that it is this one, Jesus Christ, and might I say the only one, who has secured an eternal redemption. These Hebrew Christians had 
a proclivity to turn away to the cultural norm of their day. And by doing so, they would miss the significance of what Christ has accomplished in his death. Look back in chapter 2. The preacher of Hebrews details Christ's mission. He is the Messiah. That's what Christ means. He is the deliverer. He is the Savior. And so here he describes his mission early on in chapter 2 as we've gone through. And note verse 9. Speaking of Jesus Christ (coughs) in his mission, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that he, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This making a little lower, if you will, is the concept of what we're celebrating this season, Christmas, the incarnation of Christ taking on human form. And he does so for a specific purpose, not just to be an example, which indeed he was, but to die. And in that death, he would taste death for everyone, not without distinction. It isn't everyone without exception. It is specifically for those that are in Christ. If you have your sins atoned for it, to be done so, for Christ alone. That's who he takes death for. Verse 10. For with it for it was <coughs> fitting that he for for whom and by whom all things exist. Remember, he is the creator and the continuer of creation as explained in chapter 1. In doing so, it was fitting for him to do what? In bringing many sons to glory. And that's the idea of redemption, by the way. It isn't just a ticket to heaven. It is a translation, if you will, a total change of who you are. We call it the glorified state of those that are in Christ. It would be him who does this. And he he then is the founder of our salvation, made perfect through suffering. This idea of perfect is that he this is accomplished through his death. For he who sanctifies, sanctified means set apart, made holy, and those who are then sanctified have, note this, one source. What's the source? It's Jesus, Jesus alone. That is why then he is not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. (coughs) I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me, that is who he takes death for, every single child of God. And since, therefore, the children share in the flesh and blood, which we remember through our communion ceremony here, we just did, since he, therefore, children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things, that through death he might then, here it is, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and the deliverer of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's another analogy given, 
And it is the, the greatest peril that all of us face, and that is death. We'll get to that in chapter 9. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. That is why you need redemption. And you don't need just redemption, you need eternal redemption that is provided in Christ. And another analogy is used here of slavery, subject to bondage, if you will. You have no way out, so you must be delivered, and hence the imagery of a Messiah or Christ. And notice where this deliverance is and salvation is directed. It isn't angels, verse 16, that he helps. No, all angels that rebelled were condemned to eternal judgment. That's what they deserve. And guess what I deserve? Eternal judgment. And so do you. But he helps. He has decided to display this grace, this mercy, this forgiveness of love to the offspring of Abraham, as he says. It is through this Abrahamic covenant that all nations would be blessed by a seed of Abraham. It is Jesus Christ. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is, he took on human flesh. This is why we remember Christmas. We think of Christ in his taking on human flesh. So that he then might become, which he is now, a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, all those who are in Christ. Propitiation is, appe is appeasement or payment. Your sin creates a death. Christ pays the debt with his death. It is this propitiation, this appeasement, this appeasement of the righteous judgment of God that enables redemption and deliverance from the bondage of slavery or sin. It is none other than Jesus Christ our Lord who has secured this redemption and he has done so by his blood as the text will unfold. He secures eternal redemption. This is a profound truth. <coughs> I'm convinced that the catalyst for our faith as exemplified in chapter 11, which we'll get to, the heroes of the faith and so forth, how could they do that? How could they accomplish the things that they did? It's the profound hope of eternal redemption. I have that hope, and I hope you do too. I trust we'll at least remind you of it, that in Christ, he provides the peace that passes all understanding because it isn't based on the circumstances that we're immediately going through. It is looking for our blessed hope and the soon appearing of Jesus Christ, our Lord, even in the most chaotic of times. So let's look at our text, and we'll just go through 11 to 15, if we can, in Hebrews chapter 9. The preacher has already then discussed the symbol of the tabernacle, which pointed to Christ. And we've been through that, and we went through it in detail, talking about the various elements that points to Christ. 
The altar, remember, the cross, the labor, the sanctification, that's what he does in his earthly ministry. And then you have the holy place in which Christ is now mediating our, on our behalf, providing light, if you will, providing sustenance in bread and providing prayers in the form of incense and asking us to combine ours with him. We've been through that. And then in the next room, that most holy place, the very ark of God in which is the mercy seat in which Christ's blood is symbolically, metaphorically presented in that way to atone for our sin. So now he's going to move on in verse 11. Christ then <clears throat> comes and appears, if you will, as a high priest. That holy one who would then take that sacrifice and put it on the mercy seat to provide propitiation. The high priest in the Levitical order did so symbolically. Christ did it in actuality. Notice verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the, and I note this, this will be part of our text, that our emphasis, good things that have come, <coughs> then through the, the greater, and here's the next word, greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled uh, persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciousness from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This first covenant here in perspective is not the first in order, it's the one in view, which is the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant, summarized really by the Ten Commandments, says you're guilty. We, we, we want to obey and we want to follow those, but if we really look at it closely, it declares us unrighteous. We may not have actually murdered somebody, but we hated somebody, as Jesus said. The intent is there. So it's guilty. Christ redeems. He pays the guilty debt. Let us pray. <coughs> Father, I do pray that you would grant us insight into your holy word. May we hear what Christ would say to the church, individually and collectively, that we may exalt and glorify your name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I'll get to this warning passage in chapter 2 in a minute, but just to, re re just to quickly reflect, th this eternal redemption that we're talking about is great. 
It's the great salvation, as he describes in chapter 2. And he says, how are you going to escape? How are you going to get by if you neglect it? This is one of the most important things in all of our lives. This proclamation was declared by, by Christ and by those that followed. And, and I simply just stand in the line declaring what Christ has given. Hear this is the word of Christ. How are you going to escape if you neglect it? Because the good things have come. And that's what he says in verse 11. The good things that have come. Christ appears. He appears as a high priest. And we've been through that. High priest. He is the mediator. One between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. The one who can stand on our side and stand on God's side. Both in perfection. The only one who could bring about that mediation. No wonder there's no other way than Jesus Christ. This message is for all people and for all nations. It says in our text, the way mine's translated, that have come. It could be translated to come in that sense. I think it's ambiguous grammatically and depending on what translation you have. It might say it either way. It doesn't really matter because I think it's trying to communicate that reality that first, from an Old Testament perspective, um, this is, it communicates what they look forward to. They look forward to, in all of their rituals, in all of their symbolism, they look forward to a day in which a perfect sacrifice would come. We're looking back on the cross, and we now know that it has come. And it certainly has been accomplished. It is a good thing. Things, plural, in the sense that all those things that relate to Jesus Christ, those things that bring about salvation. And part of the problem with the good news, we call it the gospel, this good thing that was going to come in the completion of Christ, they look forward to, and then we know <coughs> has come, and we look back to the cross. It isn't that good if you don't know the predicament that you're in, if you don't really know how bad things are. And we don't. Society doesn't, and we often even forget that as well. If you don't recognize your peril, then it's hard to see the deliverance that is necessary and that is so great. I just imagine that sometimes the people on the Titanic, when they got on the ship coming over here, they didn't know the peril that they were in. They were singing and carrying on. Everything was great. They were on the unsinkable ship. They were in great peril. They didn't know it. We know it because we could look back historically as to what happened. This is why this preacher is preaching. And many preachers will preach. But back to chapter 2, if you'll hear his war warning. <clears throat> this is why I say it's a sermon. It's an exhortation, he'll say later. 
But he puts these warnings in here, and, and here is one that, that does take up this nautical theme in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, therefore, he's talking about the gospel in Christ. He said, we have to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is to everyone, not just children who would then hear the gospel, grow up in, in a church, and, and then just never really embrace it and walk away. That's, that's awful. And, and I'll tell you, I, I weep regularly for that. We, we pray often for that. We proclaim, we preach, we, we help, but even us, all of us, there are those who would turn away from it. And that's a great peril, and he, and he frames it this way. <clears throat> Since the message <coughs> de- declared by angels proved to be <coughs> reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, he's, he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant here in verse 2, uh, that that's, was described as given by angels, if you will, um, it proved to be true, and and all the penalties warranted out. I talked about that last week. All even in the Ten Commandments, all of them specifically express the is is the the result of that is the death penalty, except the last. But it's implied, but it's not explicit. In any case, if these proved to be true, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was first declared by the Lord. It was attested by those who heard, while God also bearing witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. How much clearer could God make it? I mean, what more would you want? And oftentimes, actually, the, Jesus would, I remember he, what, he did the um, feeding the 5,000, and, and, and then right after that, they asked him, well, what sign are you going to do for us? I mean, look, if I walked in here, just imagine, if I walked in here with a couple pieces of bread and a couple sardines and fed all of you, and then there was 12 baskets full left over, you, 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 that would just, that would be crazy in your mind something's going on. And yet they didn't get it because, you know what? It isn't just the facts that are going to change things. It's faith. And you know how faith comes? By me twisting your arm? No, it comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. That's why we preach Christ. We just preach Christ. I mean, it's foolish to those people who are of intellectual giants and think they got it all figured out. It's, it's a stumbling block to those who have a religious order and a system, and they think they're all right. In fact, most people do. You ask them, you know, are you, are you, you think you're going to go to heaven? Yeah, they're all gone. And you ask them why. Well, you know, I'm not that bad. I know somebody a lot worse. That's not your measure. You know what your measure is? Christ. He's perfect. How are you doing? Not so much. That's why you need him. And what a gracious gift that God would give the Son. God would give you this. This is why we call it grace. It's received through faith by trust and believe in him. (coughs) And yet he's preaching along and he says in the next chapter, another warning in chapter 3 in verse 12, he says, So take care, brothers. 
lest there be in any of you an evil and, and what? Unbelieving heart falling away from the living God. It is a matter of faith. Examine your heart. Take care. That's what he's talking about. Don't get engaged in just the ritual. Get engaged in the reality. They, they were to perform these rituals. These were ordered by God and required of them, no doubt. But they symbolize a greater truth. And really what ultimately matters is what is in your heart. And I don't do it in perfection, but I remember because I, I have great concern about young people, in particular those that God has given me to steward, and, and I've preached the gospel to them ever since they were little. We, we prayed the gospel while they're in their mother's womb, right? And I know you guys do too. We taught them the gospel all along the way. But we always emphasize this. It's a matter of the heart, okay? I, I don't just want you to conform externally. It's a matter of internal, and I can't cause that to happen. So examine your own heart. Challenge them on that end. Take care. And so why should you take care so much? <coughs> As I've already <coughs> quoted where he's going to get to and has put it up a number of times. And, and why should you exhort one another every day as long as it's called today? You know what? You wake up, you th want to think about this, you want to encourage. That's what this idea of exhorting here is calling people to do this, not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, even yourself. And why would you do this? 9.27 in Hebrews, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this is the judgment. Okay. There is a judgment day coming. We know for sure we're all going to die. We, we do like to mask it over, and I understand that. Um, we try to make it as nice as possible, because death is terrible. I hate it. It's awful. I remember a loved one of mine died, and, and it, I, just, I just beat the steering wheel and said, I hate sin, because that's the, that's the result, ultimately, of it. Death is terrible. But it is appointed for all of us in the sinful state to die. And after that, the judgment. Christ has paid the judgment for me. He's paid it for you. If you put your faith in him, and you'll stand in that day of judgment. That's an appointment that no one's going to miss. Death is the enemy of of us all. I don't know if I'm going to get through this today, but we'll see. <clears throat> but I do want to continue on this note. And for here, I'll just quote for you a bunch of passages in Romans that you already know. You don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can. <coughs> I'm going to do it quickly. Mankind is subject, all of us, to death. Romans 3.10 None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands or seeks God. We don't really seek God. We seek the God of our own imagination. This whole idea of a seeker-sensitive um, church, that, that whole approach misses the point. No one's really seeking God. They're seeking idols of their own heart is what they're doing. You show them God, they don't want it. 
right? You, you really show Christ for who he is and what he's taught. They don't want it. You know how I know? Because they all walked away from him. Go read John chapter 6, and at the very end, he, he's giving them some hard truth, and they're all going away, and he turns to his disciples, and he says, are you going to go too? And they say, you have the words of life. We've come to believe you are the Holy One of God. That's the only way you're going to stay. That's the only way you're going to walk away, not walk away, because no one really on their own initiative seeks to God. Not even one does good in our perfection. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. That is, everything we do is stained by sin. It's like you have dirty hands, and yeah, you do some good work, and that's great. But you know what? It's always stained with sin. Everything, everything that I do. And, and, and that can drive you nuts sometimes when you think about it. It drove, drove Luther nuts because when he tried to earn perfection before God, he, 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 he would confess his sin, and then he'd remember something else that he forgot to confess, and then something else. And, and those that were over him were like, hey, you're, you're, just, you're, you're going insane. He's going insane because he thought it was through his confession that he would become righteous until he learned that the just shall live by faith that a righteousness given to him that he didn't acquire and merit. And you recognize that if you confess your sin, Christ is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Why? Because he has already atoned for every single one. All is sin and comes short of the glory of God. That's really what sin ultimately is. It's not a list that you fail to keep. It's a failure to perfectly glorify God <coughs> in all you do. And why it is this? Romans 5, 12, because sin entered into the world through one man. It is Adam's sin that followed all that are in Adam and, and death because of that. Death then spreads to all men because all men have sinned. And the wages of that sin is death, 623 of Romans. That's the bad news. You ready for good news? The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the good news. But beloved, you have to know the bad. Not a little bad, you're a lot bad. <clears throat> Grace is given. That's, it isn't cheap, it isn't free. It costs God everything. <coughs> Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. He did actually suffer. I can't imagine what that's like for God to, to, to know that. In the Hebrews, we've already talked about it. What In chapter 7, he says that, that he's a faithful high priest. He, he, he knows where we're coming from because he, he has experienced all that we have experienced in life. The debt had to be paid, though. And Jesus paid it all. And therefore, it's all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Back to Hebrews 9. <clears throat> That's the good news. That's the good thing, is Christ. You know what the greater thing is? You see verse 9 in Hebrews. I'm sorry, verse 11 in Hebrews 9. 
it says it in our text. It says, then through a greater and more perfect tent. The greater here is in comparison to the system that was in place, particularly the tabernacle that he just talked about in the first few verses of chapter 9. The tabernacle represented symbolically what of God with his people. The more perfect here that's mentioned here <coughs> refers to that which is real. It, it isn't <coughs> actually, you know, a comparison where we might think, uh, okay, well, this was perfect and then this is more perfect. No, that's not he's getting. Th- this is real. The other was uh, a, a ritual. Rituals that were right and ordained by God, as I mentioned, but they weren't an end in of themselves. They were merely symbolic, rather to picture to the reality that is Jesus Christ, who in time would come. That's the good thing. He did come. That's Christmas. This is where our good tidings come from. Notice here in verse 11, it says, and it goes on to expand, it says, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. The tabernacle was established, ordered (coughs) by God, as we talked about, but it's made with hands. It is of this creation, if you will. And might I say, all religious systems are man-made. Even Judaism, in which is ordained by God, wasn't perfect in that it's constructed by man. The elements, if you will, of the earth are cursed. And here's the distinction in Christ. He is from above. And you have to think of him as perfect. And whatever you think about him is greater than whatever else is compared to. In fact, I would argue there is really no comparison. I mean, it's, it's like looking at a dime to, to an infinity stack of quarters or whatever um, you, that you couldn't see the end of. That, that would be the comparison, if you will, because Christ is God incarnate. We'll, we'll look at that passage, Philippians 2, and I'll just quote you something else. You can turn there if you want. <coughs> Philippians chapter 2, about God incarnate particularly at this time of year, because that's what we're commemorating in our Christmas celebration. Jesus is the true tabernacle of God, if you will, from above, perfect. These are expressions that that are used. Jesus would tell his detractors in John chapter 8, you are from below, I am from above. See the distinction? He, he is the creator. You are the creation. You are of this world, he would say. I am not of this world. Right? There's a material distinction between Christ and the world and the world system. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, that is, that he is God, you will die in your sin. So don't take it from me, take it from Christ. That's why you need to know him. There's something greater in this world, something outside of the corruption that exists. This is why he had to be born of a virgin, so that he would be born without Adam's sin. Truly a human being, but without the bondage of sin. 
It is only through Christ that he could come and take on human flesh to then have sin imputed to him. Which, by the way, <coughs> um, in our meditation verse this week, it actually addresses that. I don't know if you look at those. We try to encourage the kids to memorize, parents to teach, but at least meditate during the week so that you could uh, recognize great truth. And here's a great verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. This is, this is called the doctrine of imputation. God takes our sin and puts it on Christ. What, what, what was his experience? That's the no part. He didn't know sin. In other words, he didn't experience it. But God puts it on him legally, if you will. This is why he dies. And why does he do that? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He imputes Christ's righteousness to the believer. He puts our sin on Christ who dies. This is why Christ must come. And if you're in Philippians, this is a great passage to describe what's going on. And he's in context here in Philippians 2. <coughs> Paul is telling the Christians to, to be humble because they're going to exemplify Christ. And what about Christ? Verse 6. Though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This form, morphe, of God means he's of the same essence and nature of God. He is of the same being. But this grasping is that he's willing to do something. And it tells him what he's willing to do in verse 7. He empties himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. The idea is he, he takes on human flesh. It masks his deity. Although in his body, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. You know what the problem is? You just can't see it. You see a physical form. You see the perfection of Christ, of who he is. But yet, um, it, 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 it isn't, it, it is, you can't see the fullness of it. The fullness of it is expressed now in heaven. <coughs> but here on earth, <coughs> he had to come in great humility that he would die. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn that we'll be singing this season. And it addresses this very topic. Christ by the highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come offspring of the virgin's womb. And here it is. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. This is Christ. And because of Christ and his humility, he was then exalted, verse 9, if you're in Philippians, bestows on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. You know, it's appointed unto man once to die, but after that is the judgment. And you'll say Jesus Christ is Lord 
in your confession of faith in him or in your confession that you indeed are worthy of the wrath to come. We celebrate this greater and this more perfect one who has indeed come. He has come, as we've read in our text earlier today in Matthew, that Mary would bear a son and you would call his name Jesus, which, by the way, means deliverer, for he will do what? He will save his people from their sins. That is why he came. And all of this prophesied beforehand. I want to spend a couple more minutes now <coughs> and give you the greatest thing. And back to our text in, in verse 12. This one isn't specifically um, mentioned that way, uh, the word greatest, but I put it in there because I think it's implied. Back to Hebrews 9 and verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy place. It is Christ who then enters once. This is the greatest act. You see, it was not by blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. This entering once is the greatest thing because it's contrasted with that which is inferior, this continual entrance by the high priest of the Levitical system who went into that most holy place year after year after year after year. Christ goes in one time. In fact, if you look back in chapter 9 and look back, speaking about the duties in verse 6, these preparations, the priests go in regularly to the first section uh, uh, performing the ritual duties. This is dealing with the um, the lampstand, the, the table, showbread, and the incense. And then there's another section, this holy place, but that's called the second. In verse 7, <coughs> only the high priest goes once a year, and not without taking blood, which he then he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people by the Holy Spirit, verse 8, that's what I want you to get to, indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. It's not standing, it's open. Christ has indeed opened the way. His point is this old covenant is no longer standing. This symbol has been fulfilled. Verse 13 of the previous chapter, chapter 8, this is called the new covenant. And in speaking of that, he makes the first one obsolete, Hebrews 8, 13. It's growing old and ready to vanish away. It'll be a few short years before A.D. 70 when that very temple in which those rituals were performed would be destroyed. The, spiritually, the Mosaic Covenant is obsolete in that sense. Physically, it will be destroyed because Christ, the perfect Lamb, has come, the greater one, the greater sacrifice by which we are saved. I'll read for you from 1 Peter 1.18, talking about our redemption, described here as ransom, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The ransom idea has the imagery of being 
in the bondage of slavery, and now you are redeemed from it or ransomed from it. And how did that happen? Not with perishable things like silver or gold. You couldn't buy your way out. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This was always God's plan for the beginning, to redeem a people for his name. Why would he do it? To display his glory, his ultimate purpose. The blood of Christ that he brings in isn't some mystical substance, by the way, that if you spilt some, it would create problems. Religious systems do uh, wild things with that. The blood of Christ is simply a, an expression that communicates his death. He died. He really did. Back to our text. I'll have to bring this up later, but it, it describe this idea of the, of the will, for where there's a will involved. That will word here is actually better translated covenant. It's diatheke in the, Hebrew, in the, in the Greek. It's the same word in verse 15. I'll describe that later. But what you can see in verse 16 is that there is a death involved. That's his whole point in context, death. Look at verse 12 back to Hebrews chapter 9. The greatest thing is then through the death of Christ, he secures an eternal redemption. Verse 12, thus securing an eternal redemption. And he goes on to give the contrast between the blood of bulls and goats, which has um, a symbolic meaning to how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ. He's speaking about the death of Christ. <coughs> and it just wasn't brought. This is brought about the Holy Trinity, God who foreordained this to bring about, offered without blemish to God, purify <coughs> your souls. He, he argues here by contrast of the superiority of Jesus. There is no greater atonement. This is God incarnate who sacrifices his life and therefore fulfills all the covenants, verse 16 and verse 15. This covenant then of Christ, uh, is fulfilled in Christ, and might I say, he will fulfill them all. All the promises in Christ are yes and amen. He fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. He, he will fulfill the Davidic covenant. He will fulfill the new covenant. And by the way, he actually is the only one that completed and fulfilled the Mosaic covenant which was conditional. The rest of them weren't conditional because they were based on the very promises of God that God would accomplish eternal redemption and he, and he demonstrates it here in how that is brought about. It is through the incarnation of Christ who would come, live, die, rise again and ascend on high. This brings about that which we call eternal redemption. And I'll finish with this so you can cherish it in your heart. You may want to look at it, Romans chapter 8. I've referred to it numbers of time, and I don't shrink back from doing so. 
Romans chapter 8. <coughs> this eternal redemption that he secures is the basis for what we call eternal security. Our eternal security is because of Christ's divine accomplishment. That's why I'm eternally secure. I'm not eternally secure because I'm a good believer and I have great faith and I work really hard at being a Christian. It's because of his divine accomplishment. You see, he, he actually did pay for my sin. He actually did propitiate. He did appease the very wrath of God. It is paid for. There is no charge against God's elect. None. None of, his God, of God's people have that, can have that charge be brought against. And Paul will conclude that concept here in Romans chapter 8. I'll just drop down to verse 31. What shall we say to these things? That is the merit that Christ has earned. If God is for us, who can be against us? And again, this question is not said uh, that people can't be against you. The point is, who can be successfully against you? Right? You're going to have all kinds of people accuse you, slander you, even the devil himself. But he's not going to win. Why? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Eternal redemption. The merit of Christ. Who then will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 33. No one is going to successfully do so. Why? It's God who justifies. So who is then going to condemn after God has declared someone righteous who has received that atonement provided for Christ, demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ and the ascension to glory? Who is to condemn? It is Jesus who, who is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is then at the right hand of God. And note this here, who is indeed interceding for us. He's praying for you. I'm not that faithful of a prayer for you, but I do pray for you often. But Christ is praying for you always. That's why you're not going to lose your redemption. Because of Christ. You see, you see the chain there that's put in? It is Christ who died. Christ that raised. Christ who ascended on high. And Christ now functioning in this high priestly role of mediating on the behalf of his people. Who then will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, that's our experience. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, even in these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, the greatest enemy, or life, things going on, nor angels or rulers or things present and things come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because he has secured eternal redemption. Praise his name. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful for this promised inheritance that you have granted to us, those who are called. We know we're called because we hear your voice. We respond in repentance and faith. Though we're not that great of repenters and not that great of faithful people, give us, by your mercy, true belief in the promised inheritance that, that you have granted to us because of Christ. May our focus be on Christ and Christ alone this day. And praise your holy name. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Beloved, I'm just going to give you a minute now to reflect and think on your own on these things. If you want to confess Christ as Lord, do so. You don't need to confess to me. Confess to him. If you do need to talk to one of the elders about anything, we're here for you after the service. (laughs) Take a moment now. Father, we do praise your holy name for the goodness, the gift of Christ given to us. May this season be one that marks great devotion and security by your people. And may we proclaim Christ as the answer to all. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are truly blessed, are we not? Let's sing 585, count your blessings. Stand with me, please. 585, count your blessings. When upon life's pillows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings.
and Prane will be dismissed. For this reason we bow before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.